House and Senate will return Tuesday and stay in session through Friday. Last week in the House, the House came back last Monday after a two-week recess and immediately took up and passed two bills under suspension of the rules. On Tuesday, the House took up and passed a rule, then took up and passed H.J. Res. 27, a resolution to override President Biden's veto of the Congress's disapproval of the new Waters of the U.S. rule. The measure failed by a vote of 227 to 196. Remember, a veto override requires a two-thirds majority to pass. On Wednesday, the House took up and passed H.J. Res. 42, disapproving the action of the District of Columbia Council in approving the Comprehensive Policing and Justice Reform Amendment Act. The resolution passed by a vote of 229 to 189. Then the House took up and passed a bill under suspension of the rules. On Thursday, the House took up H.R. 734, the Protection of Women and Girls in Sport Act. After agreeing to one amendment and disagreeing to another, the House voted on and passed the amended measure. The final tally was 219 to 203, with all 219 yes votes coming from Republicans and all 203 no votes coming from Democrats. And then they were done. This week in the House, they'll return Tuesday with the first vote set for 6.30 p.m. At that time, the House is scheduled to take up six bills under suspension of the rules. On Wednesday, and for the balance of the week, the House will consider H.J. Res. 39, a Congressional Review Act resolution of disapproval of the rules submitted by the Department of Commerce relating to procedures covering suspension of liquidation duties and estimated duties in accord with Presidential Proclamation 10414. That's a mouthful. This is a significant CRA resolution of disapproval against a Biden administration action. A June 2022 emergency proclamation allows imports of Chinese solar products with no additional tariffs for two years thereby guaranteeing unfair competition for American solar panel manufacturers. Congressman Bill Posey's H.J. Res. 39 would block this rule from going into effect. The House may also consider H. Conres 30, directing the President, pursuant to Section 5C of the War Powers Resolution, to remove all United States armed forces other than U.S. armed forces assigned to protect the United States Embassy from Somalia. On Thursday, the House will receive, in a joint meeting with the Senate, His Excellency Yoon Suk-yeol, the President of the Republic of Korea. And, of course, this is the week that the House Republican leadership will try to bring to the floor the still-unnumbered H.R.-whatever, the Limit, Save, Grow Act of 2023, which is simply the name for the 320-page bill crafted by the House GOP leadership to raise the debt limit while cutting spending. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Last week in the Senate, the Senate came back on Monday and voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Radha Iyengar Plum to be a Deputy Undersecretary of Defense. On Tuesday, the Senate voted to confirm her to that position. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nomination of Amy Lefkowitz-Solomon to be an Assistant Attorney General. Then the Senate took up S-870, the Fire Grants and Safety Act. Over the course of the next two days, the Senate considered six amendments to the bill offered by both Republicans and Democrats. Each of the six amendments was defeated. In the middle of their consideration of S-870, the Senate voted on a motion to proceed to S.J. Res. 10, 
a CRA joint resolution of disapproval of the rule submitted by the Department of Veterans Affairs relating to reproductive health services. This was Alabama Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville's attempt to shut down the illegal Veterans Affairs abortion policy, which uses taxpayer funding to pay for abortions for veterans and their dependents at VA facilities. The motion failed by a vote of 48 to 51. Then it was back to S-870. Ultimately, after considering and rejecting six amendments to the bill, the Senate passed S-870, the Fire Grants and Safety Act, by a vote of 95 to 2. And then they were done. This week in the Senate, the Senate will come back to work on Tuesday with the first vote set for 5.30 p.m. At that time, the Senate will proceed to a roll call vote on cloture on the nomination of Joshua David Jacobs to be Undersecretary for Benefits at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Possibly as early as Tuesday, Senate Majority Leader Schumer plans to bring to the floor a resolution condemning former President Trump's call to defund the Department of Justice and the FBI. Now, back to Dianne Feinstein. You'll recall that when we last talked, one of our topics was the current goings-on related to California Democrat Senator Dianne Feinstein, who's been absent from the Senate for the last two months as she recovers from a bout with shingles. Her doctors have advised her not to fly, so she's been stuck in San Francisco and not able to attend to her duties in the Senate, including meetings of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Her absence from those meetings means the Biden administration cannot push through its most radical or unqualified nominees because they cannot get any Republican votes. And without her presence to complete the Democrat team, there's a 10-10 tie. And nominees can only advance from the committee if they receive a majority vote. And 10 to 10 is not a majority. So Senate Democrats want to replace her on the committee with another, more reliable Democrat. They even induced Senator Feinstein to write a letter to Majority Leader Schumer in which she asked Senator Schumer to replace her. The problem is, under the rules of the Senate, it would require a new organizational resolution to pass the Senate. That can happen one of two ways, either by unanimous consent or by meeting the 60-vote threshold. On Tuesday afternoon, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who had been absent himself for several weeks as he recovered from a concussion suffered after a fall, laid to rest any doubts about where he stood on the matter of replacing, temporarily or otherwise, Senator Feinstein. Calling her a close personal friend, McConnell said he would not be part of replacing her indefinitely. So the Biden administration could, quote, push through a small fraction of their nominees who are so extreme and so unqualified that they cannot win a single Republican vote in committee. Senate Republicans, he said from the floor, will not take part in sidelining a temporarily absent colleague off a committee just so Democrats can force through their very worst nominees. Nevertheless, Senate Democrats tried to move a unanimous consent request to replace her on the Judiciary Committee with Maryland Democrat Senator Ben Cardin. But the top Republican on the Judiciary Committee, South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham, objected on the floor to the Schumer maneuver. But the left is not done. On Friday, a coalition of more than 60 progressive groups released a letter to Senator Feinstein asking her to resign her seat outright. Complications from your illness threaten your storied legacy, they wrote. Your absences hobble the elected Democratic Senate majority from doing the work of the people of California and our nation. 
we ask that you resign from the Senate to focus on your health. Please allow Governor Newsom to appoint an interim senator who can provide robust and constant representation for California through the election of 2024. Signatories to the letter include Activate America, Berkeley Now, Change Being With Me, Democracy Action Marin, Feminists in Action Los Angeles, Generation Blue, and chapters of Indivisible from around the state. Stay tuned. Now to the latest on the Biden crime family saga. The Biden crime family saga took its latest twist on Wednesday when a letter sent to Congress revealed that an IRS supervisor has told lawmakers, quote, he has information that suggests the Biden administration is improperly handling the criminal investigation into President Biden's son, Hunter Biden, and is seeking whistleblower protections, end quote, reported the Wall Street Journal. The letter says a career Internal Revenue Service criminal supervisory special agent has information that would contradict sworn testimony by a senior political appointee later identified as Attorney General Merrick Garland. The letter says the supervisory special agent also has information about a, quote, failure to mitigate clear conflicts of interest in the ultimate disposition of the case, end quote. The letter goes on to say that the supervisory special agent has details that show, quote, preferential treatment and politics improperly infecting decisions and protocols that would normally be followed by career law enforcement professionals in similar circumstances if the subject were not politically connected, end quote. The investigation into Hunter Biden and his taxes has been going on for several years now. It is currently being conducted by David Weiss, appointed by President Trump as the U.S. Attorney for the District of Delaware. Establishment media loves to point out that President Biden chose to keep Weiss in place when he took over from President Trump because they think it makes people think Weiss must be a conservative. He was appointed by Trump, right? What they don't tell you is that before he was selected by President Trump to be the U.S. Attorney for Delaware, he was approved by Delaware's two Democrat U.S. Senators, Senators Tom Carper and Chris Coons. During a March oversight hearing, the Attorney General said Weiss had broad leeway to pursue his investigation into Hunter Biden's activities. Quote, he has been advised that he is not to be denied anything he needs, end quote. Garland told the Senate Judiciary Committee on March 1, I have not heard anything from that office to suggest that they are not able to do everything the U.S. Attorney wants to do. When the Wednesday letter was sent to the chairman and ranking members of the House and Senate Judiciary Committees, the Senate Finance Committee, and the House Ways and Means Committee. The letter says the IRS supervisory special agent previously shared his information internally at the IRS and to the Inspector General of the Department of Justice. As interesting as that twist was, it wasn't the only twist last week in the saga of the Biden crime family. On Thursday, House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan released a letter from a former acting director of the Central Intelligence Agency, who admitted in testimony to Congress that he helped organize a letter in October 2020 that falsely characterized the Hunter Biden laptop story published by the New York Post as being the product of a Russian government disinformation plot. Instead, revealed his testimony, Former CIA acting director Michael J. Morell's involvement in drafting and circulating the letter for signatures was triggered by a call from then-campaign advisor and now Secretary of State Anthony Blinken.
The letter Morell helped draft and circulate, of course, is the famous letter of October 17, 2020, signed by Morell and 50 of his intelligence community colleagues, which said the Hunter Biden laptop story published three days earlier, quote, has all the classic earmarks of a Russian information operation, end quote. While presenting no evidence of their own, the 51 former intelligence community officials said their national security experience had made them, quote, deeply suspicious that the Russian government played a significant role in this case, end quote. If we are right, they added, this is Russia trying to influence how Americans vote in this election, and we believe strongly that Americans need to be aware of this. Stop and think for just a moment about the significance of this revelation. It means that America's senior diplomat was willing to accuse a nuclear-armed superpower of interfering in the 2020 election without evidence. And it means that 51 former senior intelligence community operatives were willing to say the same thing, again, without evidence. David Sachs explained the significance of the whole operation in a tweet, quote, when Blinken called Morell to express concerns about the Hunter Biden laptop story, did Blinken explicitly need to tell Morell to cook up the letter? Of course not. Morell is a longtime intelligence operative. He knows what to do without being told. When Morell then rounded up 50 signatures for the letter, did he explicitly need to remind those former security state operatives that their continued access and career opportunities depended on staying in the good graces of a future Biden administration? Of course not. They know that without being told. When the letter was then fed to the media, did the New York Times and Washington Post reporters explicitly need to be told to emphasize the parts claiming Russian disinformation and downplaying the CYA language where the signatories admit they have no evidence? Of course not. The media knows what to do without being told. This is how the game is played. All it took was a phone call from Blinken. Judiciary Chairman Jordan has written to now Secretary of State Antony Blinken asking for more information about this. Based on this testimony, wrote Jordan to Blinken, quote, it is apparent that the Biden campaign played an active role in the origins of the public statement, which had the effect of helping to suppress the Hunter Biden story and preventing American citizens from making a fully informed decision during the 2020 presidential campaign. We believe that you possess material that would advance our oversight and inform potential legislative reforms. Accordingly, we ask that you please provide the following information and records in your personal possession. And then goes on to ask Blinken to identify all people with whom you communicated about the inception, drafting, editing, signing, publishing, or promotion of the public statement on the Hunter Biden emails dated October 19, 2020, sent or received between October 14, 2020, and November 24, 2020. Stay tuned. Now, more on the Julie Sue nomination. The Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, chaired by Vermont Socialist Bernie Sanders, held a hearing last Thursday on the nomination of Deputy Labor Secretary Julie Sue to advance to the top spot at the Department of Labor. The committee is scheduled to hold an executive session on her confirmation on Wednesday morning at 10 a.m. Sue's confirmation is not a sure bet, even in a Senate controlled by Democrats. 
West Virginia's Joe Manchin, Montana's John Tester, and Arizona's Kirsten Cinema and Mark Kelly are all holdouts at this point. None of them have committed to supporting her confirmation. And with Senator Feinstein still absent from the Senate, a single defection from any one of those four would kill the nomination. More on illegal immigration. On Wednesday, the House Judiciary Committee met to mark up H.R. 2640, the Border Security and Enforcement Act of 2023. In a markup session that lasted almost a full 12 hours, the full committee passed the bill on a 23 to 15 party line vote. The bill would give the Department of Homeland Security permanent power to expel illegal immigrants as a tool to achieve operational control of the southern border. It would also reverse the Biden administration's abuse of the parole power and would restrict parole to narrow emergency cases, as was originally meant. In addition, the bill would narrow the grounds for claiming asylum, returning it to what it was meant to be when it was created more than 40 years ago. Now that the bill has cleared the committee, it can be scheduled for a floor vote, but I don't expect to see it on the floor until Speaker McCarthy and his leadership team have locked down the votes to pass this bill. And that's not yet a sure thing, because there are still some Republicans who have indicated they have problems with the bill. Stay tuned. Now to the debt ceiling. On Wednesday afternoon, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy released a 320-page legislative draft of the Limit, Save, Grow Act, a bill to raise the debt ceiling by $1.5 trillion or suspend it until March 31, 2024, whichever comes first, in exchange for a whole host of conservative policy wishes, including cutting $130 billion from this year's budget as the federal government in FY 2024 spends only as much as it did two years ago in FY 2022, holding the growth of federal spending over the next decade to just 1% per year, which, when you factor in inflation, amounts to a rather significant spending cut, about $4.5 trillion over the next 10 years, Repealing last year's Inflation Reduction Act $80 billion boost to the Internal Revenue Service's funding by $70 billion. Clawing back about $90 billion in appropriated and distributed, but still unspent, COVID relief funding from the states. Repealing a whole host of green energy tax credits, including tax credits for the purchase of electric vehicles overturning the ongoing Biden administration student loan repayment pause, overturning the Biden administration scheme to use taxpayer funds to repay about $400 billion in student loan debt, passing H.R. 1, the Lower Energy Costs Act, which includes proposals to boost oil and gas production and mining, and which includes permitting reform to cut down the time it takes to greenlight energy projects, adding work requirements for able-bodied adults in the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program and Medicaid. Naturally, President Biden rejected the McCarthy plan immediately and totally. Quote, that's the MAGA economic agenda, he said, spending cuts for working and middle-class folks. It's not about fiscal discipline. It's about cutting benefits for folks that they don't seem to care much about. Nevertheless, some House Democrats said it was time for President Biden to start negotiating with Mark McCarthy over the debt ceiling. They recognize the political reality of the situation, which will only become worse for them if McCarthy succeeds in passing this bill through the House. They join West Virginia Democrat Senator Joe Manchin, who's been saying for some time now 
that Biden should start talking to McCarthy. The bill will be marked up in the House Rules Committee Tuesday afternoon, meaning it could be ready for floor action as early as Wednesday. The Speaker will move this bill the moment he thinks he's got 218 votes locked down. He's got a very narrow margin for error. He can only afford to lose four votes from the 222 Republicans in the House because there's not going to be a single Democrat vote for this bill. And that's our Washington report for this week.